Welcome to Business Unfiltered, where we dive into the raw and unfiltered world of running a business with Mercer and Jeff Sauer. Grab a seat for this unfiltered journey into the world of entrepreneurship. This is Business Unfiltered. Welcome back to Business Unfiltered. It's Mercer, and of course, I'm here with the one and only Jeff Sauer. And today we are talking about contracts, specifically what exactly are these contracts? How are we using contracts? Should you use a contract? Is it overkill? Jeff, I'm going to throw this to you. So how do we define, I guess, a contracts? And then the, the, in terms of the usage of them, how did you define using the contract? Yeah. So my stance over the years has changed as I became married to an attorney and she's helped me understand things. But a contract is basically a formal agreement between two entities, people, companies, whatever you want to call it that basically puts into place um, not just what you agree to do together or with each other um, and, and the compensation, the consideration on it. There's there's technical terms around this thing. You, you, you have like basically consideration is the what's going to be exchanged for this thing, what you're going to do. And then also there's what we call legal ease or the things that happen in the result of this not working out, right? So my wife basically says a contract is written for how you're going to dissolve this thing and who's right in the end, as opposed to more of like a, a thing where you have a contract in order to formalize where you want to go. So it's really more for the end of the relationship versus for the beginning. And that's, and basically you're planning for the end of a relationship should that happen from the beginning. And that that's ultimately what a contract is, but it's formal. It's legally binding. If you make sure if, if the legally binding is written in there and it's a major part of doing business that a lot of us don't really have a lot of knowledge on or confidence in because we don't have that specific training. How about you? Do you, you think of it the same way? Yeah, generally speaking, I I like I like the idea because you know we do this like with partnership agreements or whatever. It's like let's plan out what the breakup's going to look like if and when that occurs when everybody is sane at the beginning, right? Because yeah. after when things go poorly, emotions creep in, and you know then that's where the contract I think is is really useful because that was written at a different time when everybody was in a different emotional state. So I can definitely see the the benefit for that. Um, I, I'm curious, like how when when you're using contracts, right? When we're going through contracts, we have like, and this was something we set up years ago, just because we had, you know, a lawyer that created all the sort of general agreements. And it was like, oh, we have a, a letter of intent. And then we have a master services agreement. And then we've got the statement of work. And, and that's the sort of stuff for like the, the, you know, more intensive uh, services that we provide some of the zone for you services that that we would use um, for somebody. But if somebody's just buying like a, a training course or something, you know, there's not like a contract for that. Or is there like, do you have, you know, contracts for that sort of stuff? Do you think about that? Or is it just for the service based where you use them right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it, again, like similar to the, the previous episode we did on pricing mistakes, I think it has to do with the scale or the weight of how much is being exchanged here. So if you're selling a freebie course, do you really need somebody to sign a contract? Probably not. If it's really inexpensive, you know, is the cost of litigation more than the cost of protection? And then also, if you're selling internationally, does it even matter? Are you even legally bound to it? Like, are you going to be able to extradite somebody into the court in the United States if they pirate your course, right? right. Um, so what we do on a course is we have like a terms and conditions, a terms of, of sale. And those terms are basically like, here's how we expect you to use this thing. And they've agreed to it digitally to say, okay, yeah, we're not going to do these things. Um Enforcement is completely different, right? So there's there's your there's how you want them to use your product. You should absolutely tell people how you want them to use your product and how they shouldn't use your product and what violates terms, what entitles them to refunds, if any. All those things should be covered. Um, 
it's a little bit different than a contract, I would say. Like it's, you know, I, I think that it's it's a soft contract, right? So so yeah. it might hold up, it might not. Uh, you'd have to talk to an attorney, of course, about whether a terms and conditions is the same as a contract. But then as things go up and get more expensive and and there's more at stake, that's when contracts really start to to come forward, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think there is some terminologies creep and some scope on these things. Like, is a proposal a contract? Like a lot exactly of what I was going to ask you. How, yeah, how, 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 using, how do you yeah. use a contract? Do you use it as a sales tool or do you use it at, okay, they've bought, they're officially in, and now here's the contracting phase yeah. of that. So how, yeah, do you, so, how do you roll that out? Yeah. So my wife and other attorneys I've talked to hate it when you when you call a proposal a contract because it's not, right? Like, so when you have proposify.io or whatever, or like- um, Whatever the latest tool is. Yeah, better proposals, proposals whatever they are. Um, those things, they, they are a marketing sales deck mixed in with a, with what looks like a contract and there's a signature thing on there. I'm not sure how well that would really hold up in court because the marketing piece is mixed in. And what I've been told over and over again is that a contract is formalizing all the things that we talked about to intro here. It's the consideration. It's like what, what is going to, what's exchanged for what, what, what good or service is exchanged for what money? How are you going to pay somebody? How are you going to litigate this thing if this happens? Not like, you know, we're going to optimize your website. So I had, an, I had an, an attorney yell at me because our scope of work would always say, optimize your website. And they go, can you prove in a court of law that you optimize somebody's website? And I was like, well, I mean, we did, we did this and that. And they go, well, is that optimal? Optimal is a really hard word to prove. You shouldn't, you know, you don't need to, you can't say optimize. You should say the things that you just said, go into optimizing. I will check your account daily. I will look at your conversion rates. I will do, you, you know, basically you need to have something that's falsifiable or that you can prove that you did it in the court. And so a contract should not be mixed in with marketing because marketing is in sales. It always sells it short. It always, you know, you're basically sent, selling a sunny day scenario. We're talking about when this thing ends. How do you prove that you did this thing and that you fulfilled on your obligations on one side of the contract? And so there's a difference between proposals and contracts. And I definitely think that people get it wrong all the time. And that's only been perpetuated with modern technology and so on. Yeah, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like the idea of the end in mind. So so kind of rephrasing what you were talking about, the proposal you keep separate. The proposal is the pitch. Proposal is for sales. Proposal is to get the yes, to get the acceptance, get the agreement. Once they've said yes, then you're like, cool, let's go ahead and get you onboarded. And the first step to the onboarding as an actual client is, okay, here's the contracts. And that's where you see more of that legalese, you know, that would be back there. Do you, do you, have just one contract or do you break it out to like, here's the statement of work, um, you know, that you've got that says, okay, here's for this specific, you know, project or service or whatever it is that they're purchased. Here are the details for that. And then there's a more general, you know, master services agreement, you know, the, the MSAs yeah. that they have that, that are like, here's how we generally work. So that one stays somewhat generic. And then there's the statement of work is the part that changes because I yeah. think sometimes with contracts, what causes people to maybe not use them properly is that they're, you know, you, they're just complicated to set up yeah. sometimes too complicated. And then yeah. you're like, well, I just, you know, I'll just skip it because I want to get to the business of it. And, and let's face it, most of the time it works, but every time you're rolling the dice, which yeah. is the uncomfortable part of that. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So not to be that guy as always, but like, I'm not an attorney. So you talk to a real mm -hmm. attorney for these things, but what they've told me is, I think the reason why people have a master service agreement and that's easier to do, it's more work up front, but that's easier is because in um, a master service agreement, I'll say that is, is an agreement between two companies. It's basically how you're going to operate if you ever litigate where it's going to be, who the contact is. It's just getting it all out there. If you have that in place, then that can sort of be, you don't need to redo that every single time because you already have an agreement between 
the two companies. So between that's these like two the 80% entities, stuff that's never going to exactly. change. Exactly. Yeah. The boilerplate, that type of stuff. And yeah. then, and then if you do it that way, and then you attach at the end exhibit a, which is the scope of work they're buying right now, then in theory, if they add, if you add another service, say that you're doing analytics for them right away, and then you want to do their PPC, you don't have to go through an entire master services agreement where the general counsel is going to mark it up and make sure that these things are going and get all their legalese in there. They're basically having them approve just the scope, which is what you're going to do, how much you're going to get paid for it, how they're going to pay you when it's going to be done. And that allows you to get your next contract approved sooner, right? It allows you to push through it without having to go through as many hoops or people because it's really then it's more of a budget thing. Do we have the amount of money to pay for this thing? And as long as it's compliant and as long as there's a precedent, it just gets keep on it. The operating agreement between the two companies just gets continues to get added to. So it's just an, an addendum to your already existing relationship. So that that in theory would create less red tape. It would get your proposals done sooner. And so I would say for a provider that that that's great, right? If you can get the money and, and approved to do a project in a week as opposed to a month like the first contract, then it is good to have that upfront work to do the master services agreement. The other thing I'll say is that it, it allows you to have lock-in with the clients because they're not going to go through that effort with somebody else. If it took three months to get you approved, that's three months they're going to have to wait from when they're, when they're mad at you or they don't like the results until they can get somebody else in there. And they're probably going to give you a chance to turn it around. So if you use that master services agreement with exhibits, that can be a strategy for stickiness with your clients in addition to just not having to bother as many people every time you want to make more money. So I, I think that's a good idea. Um, but again, and, and there's a reason why lawyers do it. But the thing is, Mercer, like I've done it without that. I've done it with it. And I don't, I mean, sometimes you're at the worst mercy of the other company. It really comes down to who initiates this thing, right? Is yeah. it the big company that initiates it with you and you have to go through their stuff? Who's 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 initiating this thing and whose lawyer strikes first? You'll get different yeah. results as a result of that. So let me ask you a question, because I, I did not know your wife was a lawyer, or if I did, I, I re didn't recall that until just now. So I love learning about that. But when, and this is, I mean, I mean I'm kind of, I know kind of what the answer is going to be just because of your situation, but like, how often would you involve an attorney in this stuff? Like you've got this, you know, attorney on call, which is kind of nice. I have used an attorney when I first got started to create these initial contracts, but now since then there's hundreds of people that are doing templates online yeah. and all of that stuff. So like, do you, again, partly is, is it just getting started? Is it okay to use a template? Do you have to get a lawyer to look at this? Like, I know a lawyer's gonna be like, yes, absolutely. You do. And I get that answer. It makes sense. But do you really, you know, it's like, you know, do you really need to, if it's being made for a lawyer that is for boilerplate, that is just for you to fill in a template that is the good enough to get going approach. Right. Yeah. Or, or is it something that you jump on a call and spend a few thousand dollars? They have your own little customized contracts that you can use for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as entrepreneurs, every day we make decisions around risk versus reward. And we, we have a higher risk profile as entrepreneurs than most people because this is more risky to do this in order to get, you know, to, than to have a job. And not only is it, is it more risky, it also, there's, there's bigger implications and a lot more challenges that go in there. Right. So if I evaluate the risk versus reward, if I spend, if I, if I get a template for free off the internet and I send it to somebody for a thousand dollar contract, like a thousand dollar one-off thing, um, the risk is that I'm liable for a thousand dollars or if, you know, as long as there's some kind of like, liability clause in there, you know, like that says like, I'm not, I'm hold harmless or the most maximum is the amount of the contract. As long as that clause is in there, then in theory, that's all you're liable for if you screw up. So you, you get a free template, you're liable for a thousand dollars. I mean, ultimately, would you want to spend $500 to have an attorney approve something that cuts into your thousand um, dollars? 
I don't know. That's a decision you'd have to make, right? That's not, you know, you make the decision. Now, if it's something where you do a thousand dollar proposal and it's every month and you do it with 20 clients, would $500 or a thousand dollars to do that thing, would that be, would that satisfy your risk level for the reward? Absolutely. So it's almost always money well spent. It's almost always what should be done. Because you can reuse them. That's the idea, right? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I do, I will say, you know, because we, we started and I think again, because we went to an attorney in the beginning, they came to us and said, okay, here's, here's how you do this. You do the MSA, right? You have the, your master services agreement. That's the boilerplate. 80% stuff is the same. And then this SOW and the, you know, the LOE is the letter of intent, a little cover letter basically. So, you know, fill out those pieces and then it'll work. And that has worked pretty well for us. It's been, yeah. it's been easy because the SOWs are where the work is defined. And a lot of that can be boilerplate and copy and pasted. And, you know, assuming that you've got a productized service, right? With some sort of template, it's not super customized. So I think some of that is, um, is pretty useful. Have, have you ever had to, um, enforce anything like have you ever had to use these R- regardless of of you know I, and probably not so much like you know us screwing up for the client because that stuff happens but I agree with you it's if there is any sort of like oh hey we thought it was going to be this that's just sort of taken care of by the just generally how you would take care of a customer anyway so I have never had it come back the other way but I've never also had to enforce and say like hey listen this agreement and, and this, this is where I guess the real question is going. This agreement says we only do ABC. You're yeah. now asking for DEF. So in that conversation, like if you had that conversation with somebody and how and where you used the contract to say, this is where this is defined. Now we need to either renegotiate or change terms or, yep. or you know, go through this again. Like, how do you broach that? Yeah. So a few things. One is I've never litigated a client or or even gotten close to that. Yeah, me, um, me neither. It's been great. Know, and and so that's far. part no, of your, yeah, a lot of that fighty <laughs> sense with with choosing right. clients and and vetting them. You know, like not yeah, you know providing good quality services. Yeah. Exactly. we had one that was really really bad, and it was sort of like this thing where they promised a bunch of stuff, but then they never delivered, and we sort of just got out of the contract. But it was it was not good, and then also we were litigated by a software provider because we, I don't even want to get into it, but to a T on the contract, we didn't fulfill everything when we, when we left them, we didn't take the code off the site. And so they charged us or they charged our client for keeping the code on there. Cause the client forgot to take it off of their website. And so that, oh, that was a problem. And we had to, we just settled. Right. But, yeah. um, a lot of times Mercer, it always comes down to risk versus reward. Do you want to litigate this thing? Like it, it's really expensive. Like we're not playing in the, you know, unless you're playing in the millions of dollars, it's not anytime worth it. you involve attorneys, it's not worth it. Um, yeah. it's, it's definitely not worth it because you, it all gets eaten away. Almost everything, it gets eaten away, right? So it, <laughs> lawsuits usually have to go to court based on spite <laughs> or based on like a lot to lose. Like we're talking more than a million dollars probably for it to even be there or hundreds of thousands of dollars at the very least. And most of us aren't dealing in that level with contracts. However, though, I have done a scope of work with a rosy colored glasses and then immediately regretted it two minutes later when I was like, man, I don't think I can actually fulfill these things. I look at my scope and it's like, I'm going to do these things. It's like, holy crap, did I disagree to that thing? This is going to take way more work than I thought I was getting into. And I priced it wrong, right? So yeah. my my pricing mistakes are almost always because I had this rose colored glasses. And that's why I had to develop my own method for pricing because of that, right? To say, okay, well, can I, is this falsifiable in court? Will I feel good about this thing? Is it the steps that I need to do? And am I allocated properly to doing that, right? So a lot of that stuff can be mitigated just in how you write your contract. Is like, can I say that I'm going to do this thing? And generally speaking, you're the one sending the contract to your clients, not the other way around. So you can say exactly what you plan on doing. So it's sort of like one of those things where you get this armor around you. You get a little bit more 
stronger in what you're doing. You've been burned enough that you know that, hey, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to stick to things that I can prove that I did in the scope of work part of the of the contract. Yeah, that makes sense. And do, do, so so barring the litigation, because I get that, because it's that's so rare, fortunately, I think for most people where it ever gets to that point, like you said, for various reasons, the spidey sense thing of of uh, you know, you're learning who the best clients are to take. And, and just when things start to go weird with a client, which will happen, you yep. just do your best to fix it. Like, you know, good people generally like working with good people and and the contracts are there for the worst case scenarios, which uh, fortunately are pretty rare. But, yep. the, but the the real question I was I was trying to get to is how do you use them? prior to that like forget about the litigation stuff i get that it's do you use it as a tool when somebody so you've scoped it out perfectly for you they yep. then say they start asking for something outside of scope so in other words they're interpreting the contract slightly yeah. different right so like for example i'll give just a just a, a kind of a, a concrete example is okay we're going to set up your uh google analytics and then, and you set up your Google Analytics, but then Google Analytics comes out with this brand new feature that didn't exist when the SOW was around yeah. that now exists. And then, and then let's say it takes time, right? I'm completely making something up here, but let's say that takes extra time now. And they, and the client's like, well, you said you would set up Google Analytics, right? Because like, maybe you didn't define the 300 different things you were going to do. And this was, and they want number 301. So if they're, do you come to them and say, well, actually that's an additional thing and now that'll be a, an addendum to the SOW, or do you sort of just eat that in the spirit of like, well, it's, it's okay, I kind of get it. it's not worth the battle and it doesn't take that long. Like, and I'm trying to, and this is really goes to the the using of contracts. Cause to be honest, I've never, other than having people sign them, that's about it. I've never needed them. I've never yeah. used them and never referenced them again. Like they just sort of get lost, you know, not lost obviously, but, but you know, I just don't ever think about them again. I've yeah. never needed it as a tool. So I guess the, the question is, have you, have you ever used it as a tool? Obviously besides the litigation, get all that, but just in the, in the back and forth with a client to reference or to, to do that at all. Yeah. I mean, if you're at fault for not delivering on the contract, then you're sort of on the hook for delivering it, right? So if you if you wrote the contract wrong, it's like shame on you and just don't let it happen again. Um, so if you wrote it like, hey, I'm going to do this in Google Analytics, I'm going to I'm going to install Google Analytics perfect perfectly. One, I'd take the word perfectly out of there. Right. And two, I'd say install, I would actually get more specific, install the Google Analytics code on the site using Tag Manager or whatever, right? Um, and I would scope that out in the process. So it's it's true that you did it. Or like enable all the configuration settings in Google Analytics. Now, generally speaking, if the more specific you are with configuration settings, then then the the more you can prove you did it. Um, you know, um, so you so you can even be more specific. Line iteming is your best friend here because every line item gets more specific, and then it's not vague in what you're doing, and it allows you to look like you're doing more work and to charge more. You can charge per line item, so it's actually a strategic thing with your pricing as well. So how how big are your SOWs in that case? Like if you were trying to create your statement of work, is is the statement of work like multiple pages for you, or is it a single page? That because I'm imagining that can go wild, right? Where you're like, what yeah. level of detail do I go down? Now I've got 3,000 line items because you yeah. can come up with it. But is that yeah. particular? I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the 3,000. So like I, I would say for any one service that you sell, you can break it down into anywhere between four and 10 sub-services that go into it. That um, and that's based on the role. Which is roughly on one page. Like, yeah, yeah. That's roughly simple, one page. For, yeah, right, yeah. Right. And that's based on the role that's doing it. So I like to differentiate roles from people and roles from the overall project because then it makes you staff it better anyway. That's a big part of how I do the blended hourly rate process where we actually can bring our costs down because I'm assigning a resource to it before we even do it or a resource type. 
Um, so that, that, yeah, so that's, that's one way to do it. Um, if you, if you get it wrong, you have to eat it this time, but you don't do it again. And then, um, the other thing is that if you get it right, like if you put what you're going to do and then they want to do more stuff, then you can just basically say, Hey, I'm happy to, we can add right to this thing. If you want to do that thing, like it's not in the current scope, but we can add that to the scope. Now scope creep happens because, because of a failure of, of planning slash a failure of really documenting the requirements that the client wants and, and not being granular enough. Because you can easily creep outside. If you say do Google Analytics, like I did this for a really big company, a publicly traded company. I did a Google Analytics audit. And the way that I wrote it, I thought I was only doing an audit. And I and they're, they're like, well, when are you going to implement this? And I was like, well, that's a different scope of work. Oh, wow. They're like, oh, I don't think so. The way that you wrote it, you know, like this. And so I had to go and do a bunch of implementation work that I thought I was going to get paid extra to do that I had to do because of the way that I wrote the contract, right? Do you remember like, what that, I'm just super curious. Do you, do you remember what it was the about language goal. was? I was like, review all your goals and give suggestions for how to, and how to, how to improve them. So in an audit, you're like, Hey, you know, cause like, Hey, I'm going to review all your goals. You know, there's four types of goals in the old universal yep. analytics. And, yep. and I'm going to give you suggestions on how to do it. Do a regex that says this and they go, okay, well your suggestions, I want you to put them in. I want, I want you to put the suggestions in there. And I was like, well, I gave you suggestions in the document as to how to do this thing. I gave you pseudocode, but I'm not like implementing it for you. And whatever I did to write, it ended up being that they're like, okay, no, you're setting up all of our goals across all of our global properties. And wow. so I'm like in there copying and pasting goals, getting URLs, spending an extra five, 10 hours crawling the site to figure out every conversion page in the Netherlands, you know, right. in order to get this thing going because I, I couldn't. I like, what am I going to litigate this publicly traded company? And also I wrote it wrong. Shame on me. Right now, of course you don't make that mistake over and over again because it, because that's, that's how you learn. You, you basically, yeah. you learn from every little mistake. Have you ever done something like that where you, where you included something that you didn't intend to, but then they're like, it, you couldn't prove that you, that it wasn't that there. You didn't you really mean that. Yeah. It's where it's, where it's nebulous. And it's, and it's funny. Cause I think that's why I do retain our model. You know, we talked about yeah. this in, in uh, episode 18 under pricing mistakes uh, for anybody who wants to listen to that. It was, it was great. And that's where Jeff talks about a kind of a, a structure um, of figuring out pricing, which was fantastic. I loved that. But, but um, I use retainers because of that, because for me, it's like the retainer is the thing that sort of balances it out. So if I mess up, something it's like, well, we're not doing a project, right? An open and closed project. I think you can get really, uh, and I did, I definitely did. I, I talked about in episode 18, the price of mistakes went about how I charge a thousand dollars for a full setup. Re you know, again, this is when I was first started. So I, I'm super grateful for the first customer. And I think that's important to get momentum, but right away you go, that's, that's a mistake. I'm gonna do this differently from, from a contract perspective, all of our stuff is retainer. So for me, the statement of work is probably a little bit more nebulous because we're saying like, hey, we're just going to keep this on going and we're going to keep things running. And as new things come up, we're going to add them. And as you know, new enhancements come up or new suggestions come up, we're going to implement them. But but we're actually we are saying right, we're going to we're going to implement. We put that in there. It surprises me honestly that that the languaging of suggestions, like oh, we're going to give you suggestions, could even be interpreted as implementation. I would never have thought that. Um, so I find that's pretty fascinating. But one thing I did do, like as an exclusion, here's an example of an exclusion. We don't do de development work, right? Yep. So we'll put in the in the SOW, hey, we do this, we do this, we do this. We're going to implement whatever. We're going to work with your development, your developer team or your IT department to 
get these things implemented, but we're not going to go on your site because there's a lot of people who are all too happy to hand over the keys to their back end website, which I don't get. Um, but I always tell them, I'm like, we don't want to put a semicolon in the wrong spot and take down your site, right? So yep. that's why you don't want us back there, but we work through your developers because they know the code and then we speak developers so we can help them, you know, get it on, um, on the pages where it needs to be. So, you know, we'll do, we'll do things like that. But I think it's that, that retainer model is, uh, almost like a, a built-in salve for me. So if I mess up the SOW, if it's, if it's a little bit, um, too, too nebulous and they're asking for things that are slightly outside of scope. Um, I'm okay with it because there's the whole point is it keeps it, the contract going another month. Right. Yeah. Uh, and for us, it, it's, it's, it's just years. Like we think in terms of years for that product. Um, yeah, yeah. And when we, when we pitch it, they think that too, like they know that that's what we're entering yeah. in because we're essentially their outsourced measurement team. Right. So, um, so that's, that's helped and where it hasn't, I haven't had that issue, but it's because of how I sell it as opposed yeah. to if I sold a contract that was a, in 13 weeks, we're going to do from here to here. Here's the deliverable. This is it. And we're, we're parting ways at the end of 13 weeks. There was no ongoing. There was no option to ongo. There's just, this is the project. I think I would have that error, you know, yeah. and, 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 but, but you're right. You would, I think, learn from it um, as you're going through when, yeah. when you do, um, when you do your proposal, like, are you like, is there anything in the contract that you pre-pitch? Have you ever had a problem with anybody? Because I, I have had the one where somebody's it's it's literally that exact same thing you already mentioned, which was the uh, the liability amount, right? How much are, how much are people liable for if things go south? And they're like, "Well, I don't want ten times damages." They're like, "No, we're not doing that." Like it's this. Somebody will will ding on that, and that's only typically if you got a, a an actual lawyer on their side involved, because that's what they're trying to do. they're trying to get the opposite, right? Um, so I get that most if it's owner to owner, it's very little changes that I've seen in the contracts or questions about them. Um, cause they're, they're pretty basic. Uh, but have you, do you, do you, have you had any issues in the back and forth of a contract that taught you like how to use them better? You know, like for us, I think we've been fortunate. We haven't had that many issues. We just have the one that's, you know, again, occasionally a corporate lawyer, but like, Oh, we need to change this or, you know, whatever. And, and they're, they've been fine. They've been minor. I haven't had to make any major adjustments to our, to our contracts. So I guess, you know, in you're using them, did you start off with one way and then change it to another way or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, maybe not at a contract level. Although, just just not being able to get paid when I think I should, when I think I did the work, is is my major one for putting mm-hmm. in the contract. Like, not being able to say yes, I did that, um, and being vague is the biggest problem. But I think that it actually stems back from just learning from what type of clients I want to work with, and what type of work I want to do. <laughs> right? Like, the, part of the reason why I didn't, well, I got out of web design, is because. I would, and you mentioned this, I think you mentioned this in the pricing one, but you'd like, you'd do some, you'd, you'd sell a contract, you'd spend two hours on it and be like, wow, look at this. I'm amazing. I'm done. And then you'd be like, okay, well, what happened to me was I would, I'd sell something for maybe a little bit more money. I would, I would get this, the WordPress website installed, set up in like four hours and be like, man, I'm getting paid like $3,000 an hour for this thing or, or $2,000 yeah. an hour, whatever the amount was. And then I would really, oh crap, I need to get graphics from them. I need to, somehow I need to write copy for the website, even though I'm not a writer, they don't have right. any, so I need to do that. I need This to is before ChatGPT, you didn't yeah. even have that option. Yeah, before then, I can yeah. even launch the site, I need to do all these things that definitely weren't what I intended to do. I thought I was just a developer on the site, but I had to wait on them. So I had to pull this stuff together and it's like, oh wow, that's way more work. And then it turns out that it's like, you know, you're getting down to half the amount of money. So a lot of it's just in the services I provide and who I choose to work with. Like if somebody's if pre-contract, like this is like marriage, man. If somebody's showing you red flags before you get married, 
you shouldn't go to Vegas and run off and elope with them, right? Yeah. If somebody's showing you, or it's like, just because you've been doing this for a long time, isn't an excuse to get married, right? Like working with another business is similar. Like it's, it's similarly messy when you dissolve it. So you should choose to work with people that you really see yourself wanting to spend that, that time with in the future. Right. And that's where niching comes into play. That's where, um, your prospecting strategy comes into play. That's where relying a little bit less on referrals from your friend's cousin and a little bit more on the companies you want to work with and taking the driver's seat and control of things means that ultimately when you get to the contract phase, you're not going to have to litigate because you had principles. And so I think that a lot of times this stuff, really the, 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 the challenge is, is if you don't have principles in, in the first place, that's going to be amplified significantly in your contract. So some of it to me is it's even before that part because the contract is, I mean, like you said, do you put sales language in there? Do you put, you know, do you put, no, I look at a contract as the second that I give somebody a contract and we start redlining it and negotiating it, it's a done deal. I got a verbal right. on the proposal. Right. I told them the price. They know what the price is. They know everything is. That's a done deal. That should be 90 plus percent chance that that's going to be signed, right? When you get to that point. Now, some people they'll, they'll get a phone screen. They'll talk to somebody for 15 minutes and send them a contract and think that, you know, that that's probably like a 10% close rate because it's not really qualifying it. There's no sales going into it. And so I'm, I'm more of like, this is just formalizing what happens if this doesn't work. And that's where I go. Is that how yeah, you are too? Yeah, hundred percent. It makes it a hundred percent. Like we'll, we'll do the, the, you know, the, the closes on the call. Maybe there's a follow-up email or two, something like that. But it's absolutely after they've said yes, that this part of it comes in yeah. because it is so it is legalese, right? Yeah. Like there's just no way around that. Um, but it's also boilerplate legalese. Like it looks like every other contract that everyone else has already seen. It's not like the language isn't that confusing. Um, yeah. and I think if it is, you should work with your lawyer to make sure you understand it or yeah. get an attorney to help you, you know, decipher it. Cause you need to understand what your contracts are saying. Yeah. Um, well, know, we all learned what force majeure means in 2020. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> well, that's something yeah. you'll never need <laughs> <laughs> only at black swan events. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think, and, and I, and I think that's the other thing. It's just like not blindly getting a boilerplate template offline without actually reading it. Cause I think there's yeah. some templating stuff out there that is so simple. We're like, Oh cool. I'll just use this and copy and change my company name and address and bam, make sure you read it. Make sure you understand it. Make sure you know yeah. what it's asking for. Cause the worst thing is when the client comes to you and says, what is this? And you're like, Oh yeah, crap. I, that's not, <laughs> actually, I don't even need that. Sorry. Yeah. It should be in there. Cause now, now all of a sudden I'm professional. So, but, but I think once you get that, like I said, 80% of it's the same. We haven't had any problems with it or thinking it the same way. It's, it's more of just a formality. Um, you know, in case things go wrong, but I've never, it's funny because in, in the end of the day, I've got contracts. I've never had to actually use them other than just that. Okay. Let's just get the, it's like an onboarding step. Here's paperwork. Yeah. Cause yeah. people expect paperwork sometimes. And it's like, cool, here's paperwork. I will say, you know, and I guess maybe final thoughts, um, on this is, do you, do you think about contracts as value? Cause I do a little bit where it's like, that's the final answer. Hey, this is a real service. Cause we've got real contracts, right. Versus like something online that you bought for a dollar that didn't need all of that. The contract gives the product and service a little more heft because yeah. you have all of that too. Well, I'll tell you this, having sold our agency in 2021, contracts are very important there. Ooh, I didn't even think about that, yeah. but I love that. The that, fact that yeah. for yeah. sale, for business, that makes yeah. a ton of sense just yeah. for that. That's yeah, brilliant. you're locking in. I mean, it, it means something. It absolutely does. Especially the bigger you get in business, it absolutely means something. I'm not trying to undermine it. I'm just saying like you got to sort of risk reward and you level up as you go along. So if you're just if you're doing thousand dollar contracts, get an attorney to review it once. And and as long as you're comfortable with what's in there, then you can adjust it. Um, if if you're the bigger the stakes, if you're talking hundred thousand dollar plus contracts, million dollar plus contracts, you want to lock that thing in 
as much as you can. And that's just for certainty between your business and the business you're working with. And it's also if you ever want to get acquired, huge thing. Like they went through every single contract and that you can get the price will go down on your business if they're not buttoned up and they might they might back out of it if they don't like what they see in those contracts. It's fast. Yeah, I never thought about that. What a great final note on contracts. We can use them for business valuation. That's perfect. Uh, well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this uh, topic on contracts, kind of how and where to use them. So at this point, like, this is this is your chance, listener. So you're, you're sitting there, you're learning a little bit about contracts. Have a conversation with somebody else about it. Remember, yes, it helps us for sure because more people are learning about Business Unfiltered and we love the comments we've already gotten about people sharing that. So thank you for those. But it's it's really for you because the more that you teach this to somebody else, you talk about this from somebody else, you're starting to learn it. Um, and that's really what we want is, is everyone kind of learning from, um, as we're all learning. Like I'm learning from Jeff as Jeff's learning from me and it's part of the reason we both love doing this podcast. So with that, we will go ahead and uh, wrap this one up. Thanks again for sharing and talking with others about what you've learned today. And of course, for listening to Business Unfiltered. We'll see you on the next episode. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Business Unfiltered with your hosts, Mercer and Jeff Sauer. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and tell a friend what you've learned today. Want to connect? Visit us at businessunfiltered.fm. This has been Business Unfiltered, always unapologetically honest.